Knoxville Tower, runway 23 left at Alpha 8, taxi via Alpha Taxiway. No delay, wind 2904, runway 23 left at Alpha 8, clear for takeoff, traffic 3 mile final. Read back correct, tower for taxi, have a good flight. Welcome to From the Runway Up. I'm Becky. And I'm Caitlin. And we work in the Public Relations Department at McGee Tyson Airport in Knoxville, Tennessee. We understand that going behind the scenes in an airport these days isn't as easy as it used to be. So that's where this podcast comes in. Each episode, we'll give you a behind-the-scenes look of current events at our airport and in the aviation industry as a whole. So fasten your safety belts and join us on this aviation adventure. Hello from the Runway Up listeners. Thanks for tuning in to our episode today. Today, we're going to talk about one thing that makes East Tennessee in this region so unique and so visited, and that is the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. It's just in our backyard. We're one of the closest airports to fly in, and not a lot of people actually travel by air to come and visit. So it is an opportunity for us to expand on that and a growth opportunity. And one of the reasons that we are so attractive potentially to an airline is because we have this resource so close to us and people want to visit us. Even in a pandemic, we saw the numbers for the national park explode because it gave people the opportunity to be outside and be able to social distance. And you can continue that by walking on their hikes or being a part of some of those natural experiences that doesn't confine you inside. So lots of opportunities for us to grow as a community because we have the national park in our backyard. And that reminds me, in one of our previous episodes, when we had Hillary Gray from Allegiant Airlines on our podcast talking about traveling during this pandemic, she mentioned that our area and our airport was one of Allegiant's growing destinations because of the Great Smoky Mountains and because of this gorgeous open air destination that we have for travelers all around the United States. So even though we're going to spend a long time today talking with Caitlin Worth, who's the acting management assistant of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, we're doing it. And you may wonder, well, how does that have to do with aviation? It really has a lot to do with aviation and tourism and hospitality and how the whole environment works for this kind of tourist destination. So we're going to look at it from an economic development standpoint, but we're also going to look at it for what you can do if you want to visit the National Park. And we some questions that maybe you want to know because we certainly wanted to know all about them. If you will just start by introducing yourself and your role with the National Park Service. Sure. My name is Caitlin Worth and I'm actually acting as the Management Assistant and Public Affairs Specialist at Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Acting is a term that we use across the Park Service, certainly for when you're in a temporary position. Um, But my day job is traditionally as the volunteer coordinator and working in external affairs at Blue Ridge Parkway. So I'm based in Asheville, North Carolina, typically. Coming to the Smokies was great for me. I actually grew up in Sevierville, Tennessee, and have worked at the Smokies for about 10 years over my service with the Park Service. And so it's really coming home for me to come back into that office and connecting, you know, park visitors and locals uh, with the stories of our park. And there's a lot of them, a lot of great stories. So can you tell us a little bit about the park system and the history? You talked about the stories. So what are a few of the big things that set the Smokies apart? Yeah, I think to talk just a little bit about the National Park Service and System, I'd love to do that. I'm a big National Park geek. And that's the agency that manages the oversight of these like 420 plus National Park units. 
including the Smokies. You know, I think that it's important for people to understand that that includes parks like Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, but it also includes historic sites, which we have a lot of in our region too, like Andrew Johnson. Um, It includes recreation sites like Big South Fork and, you know, national seashores and parkways and battlefields and all sorts of other units. So the Smokies is designated as a national park, unlike some of those many other designations that I just made. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important, I think, for folks to recognize and remember about the service is that each park is created to preserve and protect the special resources that are found within it. And they're each set aside to preserve different aspects of the nation's history and different varieties of ecosystems and resources. And I think that's one of the cool things about parks, right, is that they each tell a different story, but they should all connect us to our heritage and to, you know, our resources that we have as Americans. It's a pretty cool idea. Uh, The Smokies, and we want to talk specifically about the Smokies, I think it's really hard to find a succinct answer about what makes the Smokies special, but I think, you know, the, that the Smokies lies in uh, two states, Tennessee and North Carolina, is actually relatively uncommon across the service. Um, and we, are, we really kind of straddle the line here, you know, and, and are almost half and half the park is in Tennessee and North Carolina. We preserve and protect one of the most biodiverse areas in the United States. And I think that people don't recognize maybe fully why they care about biodiversity until they visit a park like the Smokies. And you recognize really when you're there how fully immersed you are in nature and that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't feel the same in my mind if you didn't see and recognize just the ample diversity of species of trees and the opportunity to view wildlife is higher because of the biodiversity. So that's a, a big thing for us. Protecting the park's biodiversity is a, is a big deal. And I think that the Smokies is cool because it's not all about nature, right? The Smokies preserves hundreds of historic buildings, features, and landscapes. And they really help take visitors back in time and help us preserve the stories of people that once lived here. And that's a big deal. When I first started working at the park back in college, I said to myself, you know, like the things I care about are wildlife, their nature, their the environment. And I wasn't as interested in the history And one of the things that I learned over the 10 plus years that I worked in the Smokies and then the many more lifetime that I've had, you know, experiencing the Smokies as a person is that you can't separate the stories of nature and biodiversity from the stories of survival and family and just spirit of the people that once lived inside the Smokies. And I think that's what makes it special. Well, and you mentioned how, yes, there is the Smokies, but then there's all those other landmarks that we're so close to here in Knoxville. And we actually have, I don't know if you've flown or been in and out of Mickey Tyson in the last... Mm-hmm. I have, but it's been a minute. <laughs> no, that's okay. But, and I'm trying to think of the year that we had this art exhibit installed, but in our baggage claim, it highlights the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, as well as all of those other parks and landmarks that you mentioned. And it's so cool because it'll say like, from standing right here in baggage claim, you are X amount of miles from Big South Fork. Or it's pretty cool that right in our backyard, we are surrounded by so much nature and history. It's really neat. It's cool. I think that you know a lot of folks that come into Knoxville, I wonder how many of them realize how quickly they can get to other units of the National Park Service. I mean, we're happy when they come to the Smokies. But I think that, you know, truthfully, it's only just a few hours to many others. And that's pretty neat as well. For sure. And, and speaking of that, 
there are a lot, like you've said, there are a lot of others, but specifically for the Great Smoky Mountains, I know in thinking of travel and of the airport and how McGee Tyson provides access to the Great Smoky Mountains for the whole U.S., you know, anybody can fly in. Can you talk a little bit about the most recent numbers of visitors through the Great Smoky sure. Mountains? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park has been, you know, one of the most visited national park units in the service for many years. It is the most visited national park with the designation national park. And so I think it's it's kind of hard to imagine, but the Smokies receives, you know, uh, over 12 million visitors a year. Um, in 2019, which is our highest year on record, we had about 12 and a half million visitors. And, you know, last wow. year, even during the pandemic, when we had a 46-day full closure and numerous partial closures, we still were, we exceeded 12 million visitors, 12 point. Wow. And so, you know, this year in the Smokies, we are, you know, regularly exceeding our 10-year average for the first six months of the year. And, you know, if visitation continues to track, we're certainly going to be right in line or higher than those previous high years. And so that visitation comes, of course, from both states, but the highest visitation we see in terms of entrances where people enter the park are definitely in Tennessee. So, you know, McGee Tyson and the locations here, the the gateway communities on the Tennessee side see the bulk of our visitation. Well, and you mentioned that you've been in this PIO role for busy summer months. What season is the busiest for the Smokies? I mean, in my mind, I think the fall, but summer is probably right up there with visitation numbers. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it has changed some over the years when we're busy. And I think, you know, it's one thing to keep in mind, just as a matter of setting perspective, if you were to choose one of our busiest visitation months where we exceed a million and a half visitors or more, that's more than a lot of national parks. So the Smokies, as a, even in its lesser visitation months, has a super high visitation. But I would say that traditionally our highest visitation months are in the summer, you know, when families are off of school and things like that, uh, lives become maybe a little more flexible. Um, so June, July, and August are traditionally pretty high months for us. And then, as you said, fall color is a big time. One thing that I would say has definitely changed over the time that I've been working for the Park Service and for the Smokies is that our visitation in the spring has kind of started to creep up. Uh, higher, especially around spring break time. And spring breaks in our catchment area, you know, in the areas that traditionally visit the Smokies is long. It's like, you know, mid or early, early March, even through the end of April. So, you know, we might catch spring breaks from um, kids in, in Michigan and Ohio all the way through Florida. And that's, that's a long period of time that we see an increased visitation around spring breaks. Caitlin, that's interesting information. So with 12 and a half million people who come through the national park, what attracts them? What brings them in in regards to that area? And and how does aviation maybe play into that? Well, that's a good question. I think that to me, Great Smoky Mountains National Park is one of those parks that truly has something for everyone. And I think that, you know, in a park like ours, it offers numerous ways to connect and recreate people are inclined to bring family and people of varying ability levels and things like that. It feels like an accessible vacation destination. And just to kind of give the rundown of some of what that is, Park offers 
over 100 miles of hiking trails, numerous driving tours and scenic overlooks, of course, hundreds of miles of fishing. You know, we have 11 picnic areas, 10 developed campgrounds. There's a lot of recreation opportunities. And so I think that that, and as I said, recreation opportunities for people of all abilities and ages. And I think that that really makes us an accessible destination. You know, I also think, and we talked a little bit about this earlier, the biodiversity of the park and how maybe visitors don't always understand why that's important to them. They want it to be protected, but they're not like, how do I really experience biodiversity? But I think for us, we, we would say it does. It absolutely is the reason why people come. People come to specifically to experience that diversity in natural life in the spring and summer when they come to see wildflowers and wildlife in our park. And they come in the fall to see fall foliage, which would not be nearly as beautiful if we didn't have 130 species of trees. And I think that they come in the winter when they've heard that it can be a little less busy and they can have some of their trails to themselves and, and they still have the opportunity to see wildlife and things like that with a little less of the less human, human nature <laughs> um, involved. So I think that those are the reasons why we believe that people come and say about the, why the visitation is so high as well, is that we've always said the Smokies is within a day's drive of two thirds of the U.S. population. And when you add air travel into that mix, we're talking just a couple hours by air from a lot of places. And I think that certainly contributes to our visitation. When you look at the next highest visited national parks, they're far. They're far away. A multi-day drive from most of the population and full, full day of air travel, plus driving <laughs> to get to places like Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, and some of the next largest parks. What is the next most visited national park? It varies. It, it flip-flops, I want to say, the Grand Canyon. Thank you for putting me on the spot. I can look it up and then I'll get you a sound bite that's correct. How about that? <laughs> that works. That's okay. okay. I was just curious myself to see who the, yeah. the runner-up is. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was telling Caitlin earlier that this is my second to last day at the Smokies. I'm only here temporarily and my typical home park is Blue Ridge Parkway. And the Blue Ridge is actually the most visited unit of the National Park Service. So it's always interesting. You know, there's these 423 units, which include parkways and battlefields and all these things. But the national parks with the big NP, like Great Smoky Mountains and Grand Canyon, they don't like to talk about those. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a battle between all of it, them. It's, <laughs> it is and it isn't, right? I mean, I think that we're probably in not much danger of being caught. I think most years we're over like 16 million visitors on the parkway. But it's it's interesting because a lot of that's incidental travel. It's folks that are driving home from work on the parkway every day here in Asheville. And, and they count, certainly, but it's, um, it's a different maybe visitor than it is at the Smokies. Well, and you mentioned that there are a multitude of hiking opportunities for people to do when they come to the Smokies. And I know from personal experience, there's hiking for the novice hiker. And there's also those that hike the whole Appalachian Trail. And there are some that are paved that are good for strollers. So how do people find out about the different hiking opportunities and they don't get dissuaded because maybe they're not a natural hiker to begin with and they just want to be in nature? Yeah, I think that's a great notion to kind of consider for folks before they come. I think that we would definitely encourage people to do a little bit of research before um, planning their trip. I think the park's website is a good first initial resource for folks as they're thinking about 
planning hikes or other facets of their vacation. Uh, but we also have uh, several visitor centers at, at our entrances, park entrances. The closest one for folks coming from McGee Tyson would be at Sugarlands Visitor Center, just in the park from Gatlinburg. And, you know, there are folks there that are there to help you. They're there to, to listen to what your group is like, the needs and concerns and considerations that you may have. And they can help you find accessible trail, a, a shorter length, a, a steep, rugged mountain hike, you know, whatever it is that you think you're looking for. Um because that's exactly the help. one I'd want to sign up for. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, I spent 10 years working at the visitor center front desk and, and we kind of got, we ran the gamut really of folks that had interest in all of it. And so those folks get questions about literally everything and it's, they're well-versed in trying to help you figure out what will fit your family best. And so I would just encourage folks to take a little time to read but also to come in and have an honest conversation about what you're looking for with our staff, because I think that they can help you best when you say, you know, we've got people in our family that are ages five through 85, and we want to try to do something that works well for everyone, that type of thing, even suggesting things to you when you don't know how far is too far, right? For your group, they're, they're good at helping read, read your group and figure out what will work for you. Yeah, I feel like I always find myself accidentally on those really short and steep hikes that I, uh-huh. you know, didn't know about. But it's always worth it. It's always an adventure. It's kind of the nature of our park in a lot of ways. It's very unusual to take a hike in the Smokies that isn't doesn't have some elevation change. That's just true. And that it has mountain in the name. <laughs> but I would just say that people shouldn't be dissuaded from that. I think sometimes a little bit of a challenge is is good for good for your family to do together or even on your own if you feel confident. So, Well, and speaking of the Sugarlands Visitor Center, which is the one closest to our airport, I know that Mm -hmm. when I take my family in there, my kids are always asking, how do I get to be a park ranger? How do I spend my day helping people hike or being out in nature? So what kind of background do the people have? It is something interesting. This is a career path that people choose is to help people find that right match for their hiking opportunity. Yeah, I think it is. And, you know, I think one one important distinction and before, without getting too far down the rabbit hole about park service careers is that it is an agency um, with a lot of specialty to it, right? So the rangers that you ask questions of at the front desk at the visitor center are not also trapping bears and writing tickets and doing search and rescue for the most part. Those folks are answering questions at the front desk and then leading a hike or doing a a ranger program about bears on the patio, but it's a pretty specific niche that those folks fall into. And so they chose a path that is heavily weighted towards education and communication and that type of work. So a lot of folks start careers with park service, regardless of where they end up specializing, either through volunteership or through uh, internship. And that certainly was the case for me. Um, I started uh, as an intern actually at Sugarlands when I was in college. And, you know, you spend several months learning all about your park and about the way the park service works and doing that job kind of day in and day out to see if you love it. And I would say that over the years since, I've supervised probably two or three dozen interns over my career, and some of them don't love it. You know, they learn that uh, that they don't love the things that they're doing now, but that their interests are over here, over here. And I think that's the benefit, right, to doing internship number one or two or three in the park service is to learn about the agency 
And then most folks go on from internships or volunteering to uh, seasonal career work. A lot of the volunteers or a lot of the park staff that you see in visitor centers and at campgrounds and, and maintenance and a lot of places may only work for their park for about six months out of the year. We certainly expand our employee base by almost double in the Smokies in the busiest times of year. So, you know, and then you just kind of progress from there if you did decide to continue your career path. I think that's really interesting because that is very similar to the aviation industry, (laughs) how specialized our roles are. And, you know, the people that are working in the information booth aren't flying the planes and vice versa, you know, but but you always have to start somewhere, see if the aviation industry is something that you're passionate in and you're interested in. And then most of the time, once you kind of get in the door, you're hooked and then you find your niche of what you're passionate in within the industry. So that's kind of a, a very good similarity to our industries. That's neat. I think for me, it feels obvious that that person would not also be flying the plane. (laughs) We are all thankful. (laughs) Actually, you know what? I'm just going to do a little shameless plug to say that one of our people in the, that works the information booth is getting his pilot's license. So it's not always true. (laughs) Yeah. And he has his own aviation podcast. So if he's listening, it's a shout out to our friend, Tom, you should check out his podcast. (laughs) We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> well, and I had a question for you, Caitlin, in regards to you mentioned before, one of the tips you would tell people who are coming to visit is that you need to plan ahead. Are there some other things that people need to be aware of? The one I always hear is don't feed the bears. What is it that you shouldn't do when you come to visit and what things you can't miss when you come? Yeah, I think that we always hope that people will have an enjoyable visit. And I think there are definitely some things that will help you have a more successful trip to the Smokies for sure. And you're right. I mean, we talked about planning for hiking, but I think that planning ahead just across the board is really important. And I cannot stress enough how critical it is for visitors to get on the park's website, especially kind of any time of year, honestly, with how quickly things change in our park to look for closures and alerts and things like that, that may be in place during your visit. I mean, gosh, Newfound Gap Road was through the middle of the park was closed yesterday. And sometimes, sometimes those things happen. So it's important for people to do a little bit of research in that regard. But, you know, I think another big one, of course, for us is that if you see wildlife on your visit, treat it with respect. Our park protects the habitat for large animals and tiny animals. And it's our duty. And by virtue of our national park status, it's also your duty as a, as a visitor to protect those creatures and the places that they live. And so if you see wildlife on your visit, you know, give them space never feed or harass them. Use your cameras or your phone Zoom to take a photo. Don't, you know, wander into the field looking at wildlife through your phone and realize how close you are when it's too late. I think the best way that we can all help to protect and preserve our wildlife is to is to let them be wild. And they are. That's the truth. I think a lot of folks maybe don't always realize that when they come into the park that, you know, these are not necessarily here for our entertainment. (laughs) They're here because it's where they live and we just happen to be where they live. So that's important to remember. And I think the last thing I would just say is that people should come expecting for there to be traffic. Great Smoky Mountains National Park, as I said, is consistently one of the most visited national parks and 12 million visitors a year. That's a lot of visitors. And I would just say that there are times, there are areas, times of day, days of the week and seasons that are busier than others. 
And it's important for visitors to consider how they can make the most of the time that they have in the park and come prepared to spend several hours here, including thinking of things like bringing food and water for your group and doing all those things that help you be comfortable while you're in the park. I think that's really important. Well, and speaking a little bit more about the amount of visitors that do visit the Smokies, how does the park contribute to the surrounding cities and the tourism? aspect. Yeah. One of the unique things about the creation of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park is that it was, of course, preserved to protect all these resources that we've talked about today. But the idea of creating this park when we did during the late 1920s and early 1930s was that it would be an economic engine for the communities that surrounded it. And when you look at the plans for parks development, unlike many of our Western Park neighbors that have lodging, restaurants, gas stations, all sorts of things inside the park. This park was created without those things inside the park intentionally so that the surrounding communities could reap the economic benefit of the creation of the park. And so visitors that come to the Smokies, whether on purpose or by default, are also visitors of all those wonderful gateway towns and cities that surround it. And over the years, that's become quite the boon to our local economies. Each year, The National Park Service estimates the economic impact of parks to our surrounding communities in the United States economy. And based on our 2020 figure of 12.1 million visitors, it contributed over a billion dollars in visitor spending to our local communities, contributing to an estimated 14,000 plus jobs in those local communities. And when you think about that money, they're looking at places where visitors traditionally need to spend money, right? It's lodging, it's gas, it's entertainment, it's food. And then, you know, there's a secondary impact as well, where those restaurants need to have a linen service, or they need to purchase plates and (laughs) forks and knives from someone. So there's a couple of layers in there as well. Well, and that kind of leads it into, we kind of know what to expect right now. And people have access to a lot of information about what's going on in the park now. And you say it evolves. What are some of the things that you see coming down the pot, particularly for the Smoky Mountains where we are in East Tennessee? You know, I think that one of the important things to know is that the park is keeping a close watch on the level of visitation and impact that that visitation has on the park and its resources. In 2020, we did a series of workshops focused on, you know, sustaining this high level of visitor use and the impacts that visitors have on the park and our resources. And we asked public and partners, employees, stakeholders of all types to give us input about the desired visitor experience at the seven busiest locations in the park. So for us, those are places like Cades Cove, Clingman's Dome, um, but they also include really popular trail locations like Laurel Falls and uh, Alum Cave, Chimney Tops. And we asked those folks to brainstorm some potential solutions that would relieve the congestion at these places in our highest and busiest visitation months. And we had hundreds of participants in these workshops and received a lot of information and ideas. And we've kind of tried to distill that information down to come up with some some pass forward, a potential pass forward to help us through managing the visitation in the park. And any of them would be would be put into place on a temporary or pilot basis before we did anything permanently. It's a long process to make changes in national parks for good reason. It's both to protect parks and to and to protect visitor experience in them. And so this year, starting in September, we're going to do the first initial pilot from this program. It's at Laurel Falls. 
So this year from starting soon, actually, through October 3rd, we'll have a pilot in place at Laurel Falls Trail. And during that pilot, we will basically reduce roadside parking by the use of physical barriers and staff presence. So typically at Laurel Falls, there's a parking lot that's designated at the trailhead that can fit probably anywhere from 30 to 40 cars. But we also have cars that park illegally on the road shoulder, like half a mile in either direction of the trailhead. And so during the pilot, we would close that roadside parking, basically. We'd also only allow parking at the trailhead, designated parking, um, during timed entry reservation. So people would basically have to access a reservation to park at the trailhead through that period. And then we're also uh, working with a a commercial vendor to run a shuttle from Gallenberg to Laurel Falls and back throughout the day during the pilot period. So that's, as I said, it's a temporary trial, right, to see what types of things may work for us in the park. I think one of the things we learned through working with other parks and, you know, learning more about visitation management across the world really is that there's not a silver bullet to any of these issues. And so what we hope to gain through the pilot is just a better understanding of which of these types of things may work here and really specifically at Laurel Falls. It may not be something that could be applied at other locations in the park. So that's a big one for us coming up and and down the pike. So in the future, um, we also may see pilots at other locations that were designated during that initial period of time, some of those other seven destinations. Well, and I always like to ask this, especially if someone who has been with their organization for a little while, and it sounds like just from the wealth of information that you're able to share that you have been, what are some of the cool stories, fun stories that you share that show the passion that people have for the park and why people should come and visit it? You know, I think that one of the things that I always found really interesting when I worked at the Smokies is, and I don't know, I don't know how this, if this answers your question or not, but one of the things I would say I heard a lot from visitors when I worked regularly for the Smokies was that the park to them always felt like home, even if they'd never lived there. And I always found that to be such an incredible statement to make. I have, I've worked at other parks. I never heard that from anywhere else I've ever worked. And, but people would come from places like Michigan, Ohio, New York, South Carolina, and they'd say, my heart has always lived in the Smokies. And it's a place that I have, that has felt like home for me my whole life. And I think, what is it about this place that draws people back year after year? But we're lucky in that way. I mean, many of our visitors come from places all over the country and the world, but we have a a really hearty crew of visitors that come back annually for their special occasions with their family or for uh, family reunions and holidays. And that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, I think it's neat to be part of a person's, a personal history in that way. So I, I think that is something that I would share for sure. Maybe that doesn't get to what you were asking. Oh, it does. It does. And I love that people call it home because people say that about Southern hospitality in our area too. It's just mm-hmm. the people are friendly. People come and enjoy their stay and they home comes up quite a bit in a lot of areas. Why wouldn't it come up in the biggest national park in our backyard? That's probably true. I guess you're right. And I think that that's the, our region is part of, is part of that answer, right? It's not just the Smokies in the, in the actual park. It's the visit to our area that makes it feel that way for people, for sure. Anybody that's worked somewhere for a long period of time always has stories. And that's a great one. You did a good job with that one. So while we're going off script, what is your favorite hike in the Smokies? Oh man, that's a great question. There's so many favorites. There's so many places that I love. 
I think that probably for me, and this is probably coming totally as a, as a perspective of a person who's left the Smokies for six years to work at another park. And I'm totally leaning into my just like hard places right now. But I think that probably my favorite hike will always be Alum Cave to Mount Leconte. That hike is personally meaningful to me because in my early years back in the Smokies after college, my husband was the ranger that worked on Mount Leconte. And he worked there every weekend. He was there Friday through Monday or whatever. And I would get off on Friday afternoon from the visitor center and I'd lace up my boots and hike the hike that trail by myself, you know, once a month, sometimes more than once a month to spend the weekend with him so that we could be together. And I just have so many fond memories of being there on the trail and being the only person above Alum Cave because of the time of day. And it was just a beautiful place to hike up by yourself. And I, I wouldn't have done that if he didn't know when to expect me. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> know that. but I think that it's just, it was proof even at that time when the Smokies was maybe a little less busy than it is now that you can find solace in this park. And if you look, you can find a little bit about yourself too. And I think it's a, it's a pretty special place to do that. So that's probably my favorite. So did he get to like deal with the llamas? So no, but I mean, he met them certainly, but the llamas are managed by the concessioner that runs LeConte Lodge. And they actually have a person whose job it is to be the llama wrangler. And they, they hike those. What a job to be the llama wrangler. Yeah. They hike them up and down the mountain multiple times a week and they bring mail and foodstuffs and you can feed them pancakes and leftover pancakes and various other things. But yeah, I just, I used to joke that the lodge at LeConte was my favorite restaurant in Sevier County as well, because we all <laughs> ate at the lodge when you got up there and it's a neat place. Well, I feel like we have totally gone a little like left field with our podcast here, but I, um, I, I found all that information very interesting. I'm sure our listeners will too. Becky, is there anything else that you want to yeah. add? This is just something since we are just talking about at the end of this, some random questions that we've always wanted to know about. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people talk about hiking the Appalachian Trail. Are we at the place where they can actually start that trek or where is the beginning and where is the end? That's a great question. So the the beginning of the AT is actually south of the Smokies. So the Smokies does have about 73 miles of the Appalachian Trail that kind of runs from Fontana Lake up and over the ridge and down to basically where I-40 comes through uh, the gorge there between Tennessee and North Carolina. The trail itself begins in Springer Mountain, Georgia, so North Georgia, and it comes up through Georgia and North Carolina, comes through the Smokies, and then it ends in Maine. So a long trek, 2,100 some odd miles, and the Smokies we hear a lot as some of is often the favorite section, but I think that there are also some really incredible sites in New Hampshire and Maine. One of the neat things about the trail up there is that it breaks tree lines. So here, even though we have some of the highest peaks on the on the trail, it's still heavily forested all the way to the peaks, even at places like Clingman's Dome because of our climate. But farther north, even if the mountains aren't quite as tall, their peaks are above, above tree line, which is kind of neat. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. I've always heard people talking about that. And it's usually on somebody's bucket list. Maybe not mine, because that seems like a long way to go and very, very hard thing to do. But it also is things that that people really look forward to doing, like hiking and and climbing some of the highest peaks in the world. And, And that's just one of those lists. 
Yeah, I think that it's a commitment, certainly, right? I mean, four to six months for the average hiker to hike the whole distance. I will say that the AT through the Smokies is a is a relatively manageable week-long backpack, right? So it's a great place to consider whether you really want to do this or not. <laughs> um, and there's a, you know, a tra- or a road, Newfound Gap Road, right in the center of it. So it doesn't even have to be the full length. You could do just a couple nights and see if you like it. Well, hiking is not on my bucket list, hiking AT, but I do read all the books about it. So oh, yeah. that sounds oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, read that's well, basically the same. Yes. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for enduring this with us today. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and appreciate all the wealth of information that you've been able to provide us and hopefully our listeners who have always wanted to ask these same questions too. Oh, wonderful. It was great. Thanks for your time. Well, that conversation made me want to leave my office and get outside immediately and start ticking off all of those hikes and those destinations that she was talking about. And, you know, we've lived here our whole lives, and I didn't know about half of the things that she talked about. And there's still so many more things that the the park offers. So thank you to Caitlin, and thank you to those listeners who've turned in to, to learn more about the National Park and what a great tourism resource it is to have an airport nearby. And if you're interested in learning more about the things that Caitlin mentioned, we will be posting those details to our show notes page at fromtherunwayup.com. So be sure to check that out. Thank you so much for listening and we hope that you'll tune in next time.